The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. And welcome to another edition of Wizards Half. Yes, a mighty mini episode 35.5. This is the show where we get into all the details that we just didn't have time for on the main episode. We've got a lot more 90s comics coverage coming at ya. But first, we like to set the stage. So Michael, why don't you take us into... The Wave Riders Wayback Machine. for July of 1994. First up, we have a huge, huge box office success, The Lion King. Then we have one of my all-time favorite movies, bar none, Forrest Gump. I didn't realize in the same month of July, we had True Lies come out, The Client, The Shadow, Adam's favorite movie. I Love Trouble, which we've heard is was a very troubled production I've heard many times. A movie called Blown Away with, uh, I think Tommy Lee Jones is in that, and like, it's a really crazy, like, explosion movie, whatever. Another really, really great movie is Angels in the Outfield. Wow, look at these movies. And then rounding out this list, you've got The Mask, which will be we've talked about many times on the podcast. And also in the same month as Angels in the Outfield, you have Little Big League. That's weird. I didn't know they both came out at the same time. I guess that kind of makes sense, though, right? Then you have, at the tail end of this list, you've got Lassie in, like, the 18th spot on Box Office Mojo for July. Kind of sad if you think about it, because it's, you know, it's a classic. Growing up, I always watched Lassie as a a show on, on reruns on Nickelodeon or wherever you could see it. Another really interesting movie was was a huge fan of, which I was a huge fan of, is a movie called It Could Happen to You with Nicolas Cage, who basically, he and Bridget Fonda, she's a waitress at a diner, and he didn't have money for a tip or something like that, bought a lotto ticket, won the lotto, and he had to split it with his wife, with think was played by Rosie Perez and Bridget Fonda and this whole thing and it's a great movie it's really cute but that's the movies segment for Wave Riders Wayback Machine now on to the music segment and we have a bunch of albums that came out in July The Prodigy I think this was their debut album maybe I'm not really sure Coolio It Takes a Thief I think this was his first album maybe it was his second I don't really remember The Rolling Stones released Voodoo Lounge, which I remember this album cover. I don't remember many of the songs off the top of my head. Alice Cooper came out with another album, The Last Temptation. Wow, I forgot all about that album. That's weird. Then what else we got here? We've got, uh, ooh, a real classic. Seal, Kiss from a Rose. Oh yeah. You remember your Batman Forever trivia. This was like the song of that movie, which really felt so out of context. I don't know. It really didn't work for me. 311 came out with an album called Grass Roots. Then Jamie Foxx came out with an album called Peep This. 
I had no idea. Is it a comedy album? Is it a music album? I have no clue. If you know, please tweet at us. Let us know at Wizards Comics, and you can also message us on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. Ooh, the Mask soundtrack came out in July of 94. The Real McCoy. I liked these guys. I liked the, the band, The Real McCoy. Run Away. I remember this song. Oh my goodness, that's pretty funny. And that's really it. Ooh, ooh, almost forgot. There is a Boys to Men album, I'll Make Love to You. <laughs> Just trying to say that out loud makes me laugh. I remember that song. That was a huge, huge hit. And that's your music for July of 94. Now back to Adam. Thanks, Michael. What a time warp. Yeah. Well, now it's time that we get into Robin's Reading Rainbow. Now, you'll recall that Wizard reported in issue 35 that John Byrne had canceled his Danger Unlimited comic in favor of a new four-issue miniseries called Babe, which, although it stars a superhumanly strong female character, is definitely not She-Hulk, if you ask Mr. Byrne. Well, I bought him, so you're going to hear about him. Issue 1 opens on a rainy night in California where a down-on-his-luck talent agent named Ralph is driving through the storm, only to find a tall, red-haired woman completely naked in the middle of the road. Playing the Good Samaritan, he gives her a coat and ride to the nearest police station for help. Making small talk with the seemingly mute woman, he calls her Babe, for lack of a better name, and leaves her with the cops who don't have any more luck getting info from the spacey, statuesque beauty. The next day, Ralph finds out that his extremely successful rival talent agent, Long Shadow, took the redhead into his care and announced his plans to turn her into a star in the Hollywood trade newspapers. Well, Ralph tells his loyal assistant Sylvia, who kind of has the hots for him, that he's going to confront the competition and reclaim this new client. And upon arrival, the woman recognizes Ralph, shouting, babe, and crashes through a wall with ease to greet him. See, you thought the woman was going to be called babe in a sexist way, but it's actually the man. Burn, you clever fellow. Well, in reality, they just keep calling the redhead babe too. You know, for lack of a better name. Anyway, having imprinted upon Ralph like a baby animal, the mystery woman goes with the low-rent talent agent who books her on the David Letterman show to display her mighty strength, lifting up a stage where Sylvia is playing piano. This is a smash sensation, but meanwhile, Sylvia and Ralph are still trying to figure out her true identity. The woman points to an address in the phone book, and when they arrive at the home of an older couple, the showbiz duo are told that their daughter disappeared along with 65 other people in an unrecovered plane crash and does not resemble the red-headed stranger. Apologies to Willie Nelson. In issue two, they track down another woman with superhuman strength, the blonde bombshell, who is now in her 60s and long retired from her days as part of a crime-fighting duo with the heroic adventurer The Torch of Liberty in the 40s. Just then, an alien spaceship blows open the house and abducts everyone in a two-page spread. Pretty intense. The 
aliens have big green brain heads, they got cartoonish faces and squatty robotic bodies topped by a glass dome, they basically look like fat versions of the Martians from Mars Attacks. So they go ahead and probe Ralph and tap into his brain's pleasure center, which he admittedly enjoys, as well as prod the redhead, who doesn't seem bothered by their experiments. Now our heroes are trapped in a cell after this, but using the combined strength of the mystery woman and what remains of the blonde bombshell's superpowers, they bust through a wall only to find there's nothing on the other side and plummet to their doom. Luckily, an alien in a spawn costume, yes, Todd McFarlane's spawn, rescues them with an invisible net and reveals himself to be part of a rebel force that opposes experimenting on other life forms. Now, this is crazy to me. I don't know what Byrne was trying to do. I think with his hatred for Image and how they were stealing his fan base, I think he was just trying to say like, look, this is a cheap way to get you to look at our book if you're a Spawn collector, because now Spawn is in this book, so you gotta have it. Something like that. Anyway, this alien reveals that their race are called the Proximans, and because they didn't write down all of their superior scientific discoveries, they really don't know how to operate their ship or technology on board anymore. Just over the years, that knowledge disappeared because they basically just pass everything on orally. And now, they're all idiot aliens. Soon, Ralph, Sylvia, the blonde bombshell, and our mystery woman meet up with the other passengers of the missing plane mentioned earlier. Turns out the plane didn't crash. The passengers were all abducted. All through this adventure, by the way, the redhead, she seems to take on different personalities and has actual conversations for a few panels that are insightful, but then slips back into her monosyllabic simplicity, which is confusing her group. Meanwhile, we see how incompetent the abducting aliens are. They're just kind of bumbling their way through through this process as their blowhard leader blasts them to bits with his ray gun. And uh, back on Earth, Sylvia's young son is being abducted by Long Shadow's goons. More on that later. Then we're into issue three, where the blonde bombshell and Sylvia intuitively determine how to activate a transporter beam and platform device that will send everyone back to Earth, which they do. So all 65 passengers plummet into the ocean and are rescued by a fishing boat crew. End of story. Hope you enjoyed it. And oh, oh wait, no. Not yet. You see, Log Shadow sends a ransom note to Ralph's office demanding that the redhead be returned to him in exchange for Sylvia's son. And when they arrive at the designated meeting place, the redhead rescues the boy, and then some interdimensional gods show up on the last page of issue three to transport everyone to some pocket dimension. This book is really all over the place, guys. He just wanted to throw it all in there. So, issue four should be subtitled The Final Exposition. I mean, literally it's just these bug face guys telling a story to reveal the truth about all the mysteries up to this point so it turns out these gods were the keepers of a great energy source but a disgruntled underling rat creature who is dressed in mickey mouse's sorcerer's apprentice outfit like star spangled hat and all he broke the containment unit on purpose sending cosmic energies throughout the dimensions where it happened to collide with the airplane at the same time that the proximans 
accidentally shot down their transporter ray, so all the passengers went to space except for five unrelated women on board who happened to be in physical contact during the turbulence, and they were somehow combined into one large and powerful female being who then also ended up naked on a rainy road for Ralph to pick up. Very convenient. Anyway, the gods separate the women, who then all go on to tell their stories of why they were on the plane. You know, one was a criminal, one was her government agent escort, etc. Then everyone goes back to their normal lives. It's like, story over. Or so we think. Because on the final pages, we see some alligator-looking aliens in, like, space battle suits begin assaulting humans on a city street, which causes four of the previously combined women in various parts of the country to once again merge together, and we're told that a new adventure will begin in a second miniseries, Babe 2. I'm not sure what happened to that fifth person, but I guess we'll find out in Babe 2. I gotta say, it was nice that this was a miniseries with seemingly, you know, one adventure story to tell, but very filled with uh, twists and turns. But when they added the sequel tease, which was actually published, I was kind of like, so you did want this to be an ongoing title? Like, why did it have to be two different series? Either way, I thought it was a fun idea overall in its wackiness. It was an enjoyable read. I just really didn't care for this tough-talking Ralph character. He was unlikable. He's just a self-centered idiot. Of course, would I have been happier if it was like Mannequin or Splash? You know, that type of story with a down-on-his-luck nice guy looking for love and finding it in a mystical woman that comes out of nowhere? Eh, maybe not. So, not all characters have to be likable to tell the story, I guess. But from what I understand, the second second series finds the combined women taking a more active role, and I think they have to like work together being in one body, which is something I find much more compelling, so I, I may have to actually pick that up next. So look for that down the line. I may be reviewing Babe 2. I should also mention that Byrne has included in the Babe issues 3 and 4 two installments of a story called Prototykes. Huh? Not prototypes, prototykes, like little kids. And they were backup stories about childlike robots fighting a bad guy and they each had you know different powers it just it seemed like a pitch for a kids show and toy line that Byrne had hoped to sell to a network and get them interested in producing but it was pretty thin on premise and to my knowledge it never made it past these issues of babe but I hope you enjoyed my thoughts on it and uh hey over to you Michael okay now welcome to another installment of Kennedy's Corner wow We've got some stuff to talk about. So, I recently reread Emerald Twilight and New Dawn, and I forgot how good that story was, and I didn't remember that in the same context of all this happening is exactly the time that Kyle Rayner's girlfriend gets killed in that book. I was like, the guy's been a hero for about a half an hour, and he's already facing a tragedy. I was like, this is crazy. That was really mind-blowing to me. I was like, I totally forgot about that. I was like, really shocked by it. The writing is so fantastic in this story. It's unbelievable. It made me surprised that they haven't really done much of anything in order of, like, bringing his girlfriend back. Like, you know, most characters have somehow died and come back. In many cases, this particular character has never come back. Maybe she came back in Blackest Night as, like, a zombie, potentially. But beyond that, I don't think she really has ever come back in the fold because, no pun intended, she was folded up and put into a refrigerator by uh, Major Forge. Spoiler. Oh my god, I forgot how bad that was. It was so unbelievable. 
I'm also reading in preparation for our Zero Hour special. I'm rereading Zero Hour, and I'm going to read the Batman Zero Hour story as well. So far, it's not as good as I remember. It's better than most things that I've had to read in the past couple of years. Beyond that, I am also reading a book by Zenoscope called Man Goat and the Bunny Man. If you haven't picked this book up, you need to get it. It's only three issues. We're out to issue two so far. It is the craziest, most insane story I've read in a long time, but it's got incredible writing amazing art it is a really fun psychotic story like i can't believe this thing was made but it is so good and so fun you have to pick this up when it goes into trade or if you can go find the couple of issues they are selling out so fast they were under ordered by comic shops and they're already going to like second printings and some and they're just really hard to find they're selling out like nuts because this book is bananas like <laughs> it's total bananas it's unbelievable though i really enjoy it you should check it out too and that is Kennedy's corner for july of 1994 Hey there, gift-giving geeks! We're just taking a break to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, Fun.com. You know, Michael, Steven, and I buy each other presents all the time, and we're always looking for the most obscure and nerdy items to impress each other. Speaking for personal experience, Fun.com is a fantastic source for officially licensed pop culture clothing, toys from the likes of DC and Marvel, how about Ghostbusters or the Batman movies, plus exclusive items you just won't find anywhere else. There's actually a killer Venom t-shirt in an Eric Larson style available only at Fun.com. It's super cool. And check this out. Just for being a listener to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics on the Retro Network, you can get 10% off your next order from Fun.com through August 7th, 2021. The 10% will automatically be subtracted from your shopping cart total there on the site. Just click the link found in the show notes for this episode and the discount will be automatically applied. I've done it. I bought my daughter a Wonder Woman t-shirt, a Star Wars themed storybook for my son, and uh, maybe a few items for myself as well. So treat yourself or your geeky friends and family to the gift of fun from fun.com. Hey, all you sexy people. It's time for our Hunk and Babe of the Month. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan. Too sexy for Milan, New York and Japan. This month's hunk, I'm hoping to pick up a few tips, is Sandman. This is DC's Sandman from the Vertigo title. Wizard says, it's a pretty chilly night from the looks of it. Morpheus might want to hike up his little wrap there, at least up to his belly button. I never would have guessed he was an innie. Anyway, DC's smooth alabaster-skinned permed embodiment of Dream has himself a pretty decent build there. On top of his rock-hard tummy, you could bounce yogurt off of that belly. And broad shoulders, he's also one of those rugged He-Man types. I mean, to clasp your cape latch onto the flesh of your right shoulder? Jeez, that's gotta sting just a little. Yeah, it's kind of like a very odd... I, I'm wondering from what Sandman comic or publication this is, because, yeah, he's got this one cape 
shaved shoulder that has a clasp that, yes, seems to be connected to his flesh. And then it just barely covers up his junk uh, with this little part of the wrap that's going around, you know, just below his waist. So it's kind of a strange look here. He seems to be in the desert. So this might have been, I think there was like this like a thousand and one Arabian Nights or something story we read about in one issue. So that might be what's going down here. But now let's meet our babe of the month. And it's Voodoo from Wildcats. If you could judge a bathing suit by how little of it there is, then we give a big thumbs up for Voodoo's awesome swimwear. I wonder if it's standard issue for the Wildcats women. So aside from stopping beach volleyball games in mid-volley just by walking by, what's Voodoo's superpower? This hot babe has the ability to manipulate people's minds so they do whatever she wants them to. Dressed like that, she could get most guys to do what she wanted without ever using that funky power. Come on, if you met her at the beach and she asked you real nice to drop a lobster down the front of your suit you drop two just to impress her and maybe even some crabs too yeah so this seems to be like the standard go-to line like if wizard had a pickup line for the babe of the month it's like you don't need those powers to manipulate me oh you're so hot like it's kind of tired at this point because they just used it for another babe of the month who had mind control powers i believe it was the purple woman persuasion so yeah i feel like they are definitely running out of things to say about the hunkin' babe of the month. But, uh, hey, we gotta chronicle it. This was a time when Baywatch was all the rage, so of course they're going to comment on the bathing suit. But until next time, mmm, stay saucy. Alright guys, well, I haven't come up with a name for this segment yet, but Wizard keeps packing in these contests so I figure we might as well take a look at them here. This first one here seems kind of random. You know, we had on the main episode a Wolverine contest. We had a Prophet contest, which makes sense. They both had the cover. But now we have a Crow contest. Yes, and it's called Something to Crow About. It says, due to all the publicity and hype surrounding the release of Mirabax's The Crow, based on James O'Barr's comic of the same name, Kitchen Sig Press and Wizard Press have cooked up this be-all, end-all Crow contest. Don't believe us? Here's what you can win. The grand prize, one lucky fan wins an original piece of framed crow art signed by its artist, crow creator James O. Barr. Second prize, five fans make off with a limited edition crow print, only 500 exist, signed by James O. Barr. Third, the crow graphic novel signed by James O. Barr. Fourth, the crow graphic novel and a crow movie t-shirt. Fifth prize, an official crow movie teaser poster. And all you have to do to enter is send in the coupon at the bottom honestly to me it feels like they should have done something a little bit more like you had to actually put crow makeup on your face or something since that's one of the most defining characteristics of the character it's kind of a cop-out where they're just like anything to promote the crow please the next one here really comes out of nowhere out of the shadows you might say because it is a shadow hawk contest Shadowline inc and wizard press are well aware of the copious talents of wizards readers that's why we've teamed up to produce this awesome contest contest in which one lucky winner's Shadowhawk art will appear as an actual trading card in the next Shadowhawk trading card set. For the full skinny on what's up for grabs in this kicking contest, read on. So yeah, so the grand prize here, it says, the winner will have his or her art appear as an actual trading card in the next Shadowhawk trading card set, as well as in an upcoming issue of Shadowhawk and an upcoming issue of Wizard the Guide to Comics. On top of that, the grand prize winner will also receive a complete set of all the Shadowhawk series through Shadowhawk 3, number 
4, including a super rare Gold Shadowhawk number 3 number 1, limited to 4,000 copies, with each and every issue signed by Shadowhawk creator Jim Valentino. Now, the second prize is a complete set of all the Shadowhawk series through Shadowhawk 3 number 4, including a Gold Shadowhawk 3 number 1, all signed by Jim Valentino. And hey, we'll throw in a Shadowhawk 2 trade paperback signed by that Valentino fellow, as well as an animated alligator compact disc or cassette, your choice, which features a dramatic reading set to music of the entire Shadowhawk 2 trade paperback. Huh? I gotta track this down, man. I mean, I remember that the Max had a live reading tape, but I had no idea that they had this compact disc or cassette for Shadowhawk 2. I love the dramatizations. Third prize is, if you can't do any better than third place, you win a gold Shadowhawk number three signed by Jim Valentino. So no matter what, you're getting a Valentino signature. You better love it. This is interesting because they say it has to be 100% original and 100% you. So I guess they're going to go check and make sure you weren't copying any poses from Valentino. But yeah, but that's how it goes. Basically, you send that in. He's going to decide which one he likes best. And then it's going to be all over the place. So we're going to have to follow up on this at some point and find out who won. Wizard is usually pretty good about reporting on that. The last contest here is also image-related, because this is a Savage Dragon contest. They say aside from being the toughest bald cop on the planet, the Savage Dragon is also one of the coolest heroes in the Image universe. Now, Dragon creator Eric Larson, sculptor Clayburn Moore, and Wizard Press have all teamed up to give you the chance to win all sorts of neat dragon stuff. Here's the loot. For the grand prize, that's five winners, get this, a Savage Dragon statue that's so amazing it looks like Larson himself built the darn thing, not to mention a limited edition hardcover book collecting the Savage Dragon miniseries. Second prize is Savage Dragon 1 through 3, signed by Eric Larson and a limited edition hardcover book collecting the Dragon miniseries. Third prize is a Savage Dragon, signed by Eric Larson. A Savage Dragon ongoing series number 1, signed by Eric Larson. Fourth prize, a Freak Force number 1, signed by penciler Victor Bridges. Okay, this is getting less good. Fifth prize, a Super Patriot number 1, signed by artist Dave Johnson. Who's that? Sixth prize, a Vanguard number 1, signed by writer Gary Carlson. And finally, seventh prize, a Savage Dragon ongoing series number two, and a Savage Dragon THV and Ninja Turtles crossover number one. So yeah, you're really vying for that top prize there. And there were five chances, so that ain't bad. So you actually have to work for this one. It says, okay, you're pretty pumped now, but you're also pretty nervous about what you have to do to win all that cool stuff. That's understandable. We enjoy torturing our readers with all these weird contests, and this one is no exception. To be eligible to win some of that neat dragon stuff, you've got to play detective and find out the particular issues of Savage Dragon in which the six supervillains shown at left first appeared. We're talking any debut here, even cameos and one-shots, miniseries, regular series, whatever. Just make sure you find each villain's first Image Comics appearance. And then you write that down and you send it in. So these uh, six villains are Cesspool, Cyberface, The Feed, Hellraiser, Mako, and Overlord. Cyberface. Come on. Really? Cyberface. Anyway, there you go. Those are our contests from Wizard Issue 35. And now it's time to get into some of the top 10 lists for Wizard number 35.
So here's the thing. If the top 10 heroes and villains of the month, it's pretty much the same deal, right? I mean, we got Spawn and Spider-Man on top. You got Batman and Gambit in there, Wolverine and Superman. I mean, there's really no big surprises other than the Violator. Yes, the Violator from Spawn. And here's what they had to say. From the looks of this portrait, if the Spawn motion picture were cast today, the role of the Violator would go to young Frankenstein's Peter Boyle. A close second would be the love child of Barney Miller's Abe Vigoda and Taxi's Danny DeVito. If nothing else, the Violator's presence finally brings the villain quotient in the top 10 heroes and villains back up to at least one. What with all the cool villains like Venom and Sabretooth being good guys now, there are no more cool villains. As long as the Violator remains a big thorn in Spawn's side, after all, Spawn's at the top of the charts, this diminutive demon should continue to cling to his fame. So yeah, they shook it up a little bit there by adding a villain, yet where are the female superheroes? Come on, come on, wizard, you could do this. Now, of course, who I look forward to the most on this list, it's time for the Mort of the Month. And this month's Mort is the Hypno-Hustler. Just when you thought we'd scrape the bottom of the feeble character barrel, and let us tell you, that's one big barrel, we dredge up this absolute gem. The Hypno-Hustler used his hypnotic abilities, combined with the mesmerizing powers of his trio of backup singers, the Mercy Killers, to facilitate robberies. His career of crime was just getting underway when he decided to rob a disco he was playing. Much to his chagrin, Spider-Man was there in the guise of his alter ego Peter Parker, resplendent in John Travolta-ish white leisure suit. Spidey saved the day by figuring out that the hypno-hustler's powers were based on sound, plugging his ears with webbing. He defeated this bozo, who looks like a cross between Prince, Rick James, and Sly Stone. This wingnut first appeared in Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man number 24 in a story that went by the now legendary name of Spider-Man Night Fever. So yes, the Hypno Hustler. I will say that I have not come across the Hypno Hustler in the main continuity for Spider-Man, but for those of you who have ever read what was basically the equivalent of Spider-Man's The Dark Knight Returns, there was a Spider-Man story that was kind of self-contained. It was a mini-series in an alternate reality called Spider-Man Reign. That's R-E-I-G-N, like the rain. It was Peter Parker, essentially, having been an old man, MJ died from exposure to his radioactive fluids. It's true. And uh, yeah, so he was just an old dude who gets called back into action. He has to fight Venom and the Sinister Six and all these characters that have survived in this oppressive society where there's now this giant like web, but it's like a shell that protects all of New York City and all this stuff. So it's super dark, yet it's kind of goofy looking because the art style's all craggly and a little cartoony. But yeah, the Hypno Hustle happened to make a cameo in that. So really, really interesting story. If you've never read Spider-Man Reign, check it out. But let's move on to another top 10 list that we haven't spent very much time talking about here. That's right. With issue 35, we still have the Wizards Top 10 Hottest Artists and Wizards Top 10 Hottest Writers, okay? So since the beginning... 
Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee have been in the number one and number two spots of Wizard's top 10 hottest artists. We have heard that comic book professionals in the industry really took this list seriously. They would get upset when they were not featured on the list. They were always jockeying, trying to figure out how they would do it. Well, apparently the way you do it is draw like Todd McFarlane who's in the number one spot because Stephen Platt is at number three. Joe Quesada is at number four. Now, this is interesting because each artist is listed with the book they are currently working on. So Todd McFarlane has Spawn, Jim Lee has Wildcats, Stephen Platt has Profit, of course. But Joe Quesada in the number four spot says, Upcoming, just you wait. And yes, there is some big news to come in episode 36. Now, in the number five spot, we have Bart Sears with Violator. In the number six spot, we have Frank Miller with Sin City, a Dame to Kill For. In number seven spot, we have Greg Capullo, also on Violator, because Bart Sears and Greg Capullo, like, they kind of switched places at one point on that book. But you know what? Looking at Greg, he kind of looks like a young Frank Miller. That's interesting. Uh, in the number eight spot is Mark Silvestri with Cyberforce. In number nine spot, we have Dale Keown with Pitt. And number 10, at the bottom, oh, how the mighty have fallen, Andy Kubert on X-Men. X-Men artist in the number 10 spot. Can you believe it? Now, on the top 10 hottest writers, we once again have Frank Miller. Then we have Neil Gaiman. Then we have Peter David. Then we have John Byrne. We have Alan Moore. Dan Jurgens, Chris Claremont, Fabian Nicieza, just by sheer volume, I'm sure, Ron Mars doing his Green Lantern and Silver Surfer, and Denny O'Neill working on Batman after all these years. So that is our top 10 for now. You want to know the top 10 hottest comics? I think you can guess who's still number one. Oh, people love their splat. Now, I got to tell you guys, originally, I was going to skip this section, okay? I was like, we got a lot of top 10s in this issue, but it is so important important that we cover this. Why? Because this is a major turning point for the comic industry. This is really showing where female heroes began to take the spotlight. Maybe not for the best reasons, but let's get into this here. So the top 10 for June 1994, of course, in the number one spot is Profit, number 4A, the Stephen Platt cover, right? But Number two is a big deal, okay? This is Gen 13 number one. Here's what Wizard had to say about that. Gen 13 is another one of those books for which demand far exceeds supply. We'll tell you why. The title was first introduced as Gen X via ads that ran last spring in the pages of Wizard 23, and fans eagerly anticipated the book. Unforeseen circumstances resulted in it being resolicited last fall as Gen 13. Retailers were feeling the bite from the overabundance of product last spring and summer, and when they were given the chance to to reorder the issue, they penciled in significantly fewer numbers. The fan community, however, never forgot the book and turned out in droves to buy it. Hence the immediate and continued secondary market action on this book. So as you know, I've been covering Gen 13. I handled the miniseries and the zero issue and the half issue as part of the Gen 13 line. And very soon here in the world of comics in 1995, Gen 13 gets their ongoing series. So the Gen 13 line will return to the mini episodes. But here's the thing, Gen 13 is not only in the number two spot, they're now in the number three spot, okay, with Gen 13 number two. So, obviously, the main character a lot of people feel in Gen 13 when you think of that group at the forefront is Caitlin Fairchild. So, there is a female heroine who is taking the spotlight. Number four, we have Marvel's number two. Number five, we have Beavis and Butthead number one hanging in there. In number nine, we have Green Lantern number 47, which was a, a re-teaming 
of Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And then number 10 is Wolverine number 75, where he gets his adamantium removed by Magneto. But six, seven, and eight are all female-led titles, okay? Number six is She. Yes, S-H-I. You guys can't forget She with her kabuki-like makeup and dual swords. So here's what they have to say here. We appear to be witnessing the dawn of the hot-looking bad girl comics. It seems that this once underground segment of the collecting community has come above ground, giving some of the latest bad girl books large secondary market presence. She, The Way of the Warrior number 1, is the latest comic to take advantage of this phenomenon. She is Anna Ishikawa, a woman who's got superior fighting skills in ancient oriental philosophy, as well as the requisite killer bod on her side, in her battle against ancient evil forces. The first issue of this title has met with amazing success as the entire 50,000 plus print run was snapped up mere days after its release. So if you guys might remember, this is Billy Tucci who was the mastermind behind She. And yeah, so this was a big deal. But speaking of white-faced heroines as part of this bad girl era, yes, we have Lady Death. Okay, so Lady Death number one is here. And we've talked about Lady Death being on the list in the past. She was the first to break through, it feels like. But then Vampirella is in number eight. Vengeance of Vampirella number one. Wizard says, The last of our bad girl triumvirate, Vengeance of Vampirella features the best known, and dare we say it, oldest bad girl in comics. Like the other two bad girl books in this top ten, this book hit the stands and did a rapid disappearing act. Vampy publisher Harris Comics had to go to a second printing. The cover is a stunning wraparound foil job with Vampy, as our longtime fans call her, awash in a sea of blood, rendered by hot art tandem Joe and Enhance this Casada and Jimmy Yahump Palmiotti. I don't know what that Yahump is. <laughs> Another bad girl book with secondary market muscle. Vengeance of Vampirella is proof that in comics, hot babes are indeed hot. So yes, is this a little misogynistic? Is this sexist? It certainly is, but this is a moment in time in the world of comics. This cannot be denied how big this trio were with She, with Lady Death, with Vampirella, and the many more bad girls that are to come. So it, we just had to cover it here. Wizard 35 is really where you see that shift take place. And I will tell you, with half issues, with coverage in the magazine, and so much more, the dawn of the bad girls is upon us. And that is the top 10 comics for June 1994. But, uh, hey, I think it's time to wrap this bad boy up. And there you go, another episode of Wizard's Half in the books. Thank you so much for listening and checking out our additional ramblings on the world of 90s comics. Of course, if you want to ramble at us, you can find us on social media, at Wizard's Comics on Twitter, at Wizard's underscore comics on Instagram, find us over on the YouTube channel at Wizard's Podcast, and hey, if you have some suggestions, if you want to be a guest on the show, hey, we might be open to it. If you could hook us up with a cool guest, even better. Email us at wizardscomicspod at gmail.com, and I can tell you that next time around on episode 36, we actually do have a very special guest. From those of you who love listening to your podcast, if you've ever heard of the We Hate Movies podcast, well, we have Steve Sadak, one of the very funny hosts from that podcast, joining us. And uh, we had a lot of fun just getting his perspective on our Rob Liefeld feud.
feud, uh, among other things. So look forward to that episode. And in fact, we're going to have all sorts of podcasting hosts uh, joining us very soon during our summer series. Okay, so as we're getting into the summer here, we have a lot of people that are going to uh, share their love of comics and you'll get to know a little bit more about the podcast that they do. And it's going to be a ton of fun. So until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.